In the name of Jesus, amen. David Gibson of Idaho Falls had always thought of himself as a hero, a high school hero for sure, but a hero nonetheless. He had been voted co-captain and most improved player on the basketball team during his senior year. David recollects, and I quote, at the annual sports assembly, I was called forward in front of the entire student body and presented with two trophies, one for each award. It was a day of great pride for me, and I have kept those two tiny trophies for more than 30 years. Last year, I drove to my hometown for my 30-year reunion. I arrived early, and so I walked through the old high school to see what it looked like after three decades. I found the lobby where the sports awards are displayed and looked for the two plaques where my name would be inscribed in honor of my awards. I found both plaques, and I found that in both cases, the name of one of my teammates had been substituted for where mine was supposed to go. Now, I'm certain that I won these awards. I remember receiving the awards, and I still have the two trophies at home. But my name was not on the plaques where it belonged. My promised glory had been stolen from me." End quote. Human glory is often fleeting and ephemeral. Divine glory, however, is something entirely different. God's glory runs through our readings this morning with a brilliance that causes us to stop, to fear, in a, in a positive sense, that fear that is really awe, and to reflect. From Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Years after the events in our gospel reading this morning, Peter, one of the eyewitnesses to the transfiguration, writes, when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. The gospel reading itself could be summarized as from glory, the transfiguration, to future glory, the resurrection. To catch the brilliance of that glory, we need to place the transfiguration within the context of Matthew's narrative. In chapter 16, Jesus and the Twelve are in the district of Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus asks, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? After listing several popular conjectures, Peter boldly declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. From that high point, things immediately go south as Jesus discloses his crucifixion for the first time, and Peter rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan, is Jesus' reply. And it gets worse. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Step ahead for just a moment to the Father's command from the cloud. Listen to him. 
Jeff Gibbs suggests that the truth to which the disciples need to listen has to do with the new revelation that Jesus has now begun to show to his disciples about the way of the cross for himself and for them. But there is hope. Chapter 16 closes with the assurance that some of those standing here will certainly not taste death until they see that the Son of Man is coming with his reign. And after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John up the mountain, and the text simply says that he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. How can words describe this scene? Jerome, the late 4th and early 5th century church father who gave us the Vulgate, speculated that the Lord was transformed into that glory with which he would afterwards come in his own kingdom. Jesus did not receive this glory. It is better to say that he revealed this glory, his glory, glory that was his from the creation of the world now becomes visible within creation. The inbreaking of the reign of heaven is a prominent motif in Matthew's narrative. From the Immaculate Conception, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit to the Jordan River and the Father's voice the first time, this is my beloved Son, to Galilee and soon to Jerusalem and to the cross, God's glory hidden in God's servant. Tense. That's what we need. Tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The incongruity of Peter's response jars our ears. When was the last time that you got to hear Moses speak anyway? Stop being an interrupting pest, Peter. Peter Navsger observes that Peter is prattling away in the presence of God. God graciously interrupts him. And I'd like to focus for a moment on that interruption, or better yet, the fact that God did interrupt Peter. We often need to be interrupted. Sometimes it is because of unchristian beliefs or habits that worm their way into our lives. What once were vices are now habits, to borrow the title of an old Doobie Brothers album. At other times, we need to be interrupted because we have been listening to the wrong voice, the enriching and tantalizing voice of distorted Christian messages heard from pulpits and stadium stages, a message that shuns the cross and acquaints temporal blessing with God's approval rating for our faith of our lives or the voice of a more pragmatic Christianity that measures salvation with a ledger of charitable works and a grace perfected by cooperation that invites us to work our way into the kingdom. Still, at other times, we need to be interrupted from our own speaking, the inner voice of self-accusation that unburies sins long ago confessed that would annul the absolution already received. 
or the adamant voice of a grudge that we will not yield, or more closely related to our text, our prayers for things which seem good and right at the time, but are not in line with God's good and perfect will. Let me interrupt your listening for a moment and invite you to get out your bullet and insert and listen with your eyes as we look at the painting that is available to all of you. What you have in front of you is a photographic reproduction of Raphael's transfiguration. It was commissioned by Cardinal Giulio de Michi, who would later become Pope Clement VII. Raphael worked on this altarpiece from 1516 until his death in 1520. In reality, it stands over 13 feet tall and is nine feet wide. In this painting, Raphael has combined our gospel reading, the transfiguration of our Lord, with the pericope immediately following our reading, the healing of the paralytic boy. The lower scene of this painting is surrounded by darkness. It displays the turmoil and the chaos that Jesus encountered when he came down off the mountain. The figure in the lower left is the evangelist Matthew who gestures the crowd to wait. The father looks pleadingly at the disciples. The boy seems to be screaming. And the disciples? The disciples can't do it. They cast out demons before, but not this time. For the disciples, for you and I, for Peter, the demon remains. Salvation is not our own. Our tents are unbuilt. Our interruption is interrupted. So much for human glory. Tents? You want tents? I will give you tents. While Peter was still speaking, look, a shining cloud overshadowed them. This cloud is the same cloud that Israel saw over the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory was the cloud that descended on the temple Solomon built, 1 Kings 8. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord left the temple. In Ezekiel's vision in chapter 10, it went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes. And it did not return to the second temple, the one built by Zerubbabel. It did not illumine the greatly expanded temple complex of Herod the Great. But the glory of the Lord did return to the temple in the arms of Mary. And then taken up by Simeon, who declared the infant Jesus, your salvation a light for revelation to the Gentile and for the glory to your people, Israel. The glory as the only begotten from the Father returned 33 years later to challenge the Jews to destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
And now, in our text, the glory of the Lord descended on the mountain, and Peter and James and John fell on the ground. Isaiah beheld the same glory and wailed, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You and I need to reflect on what these eyewitnesses say, how they react. Remember, consider the holiness of God. With the psalmist, we ask, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now take another look at the painting. See how Raphael portrays Peter, James, and John on the mountaintop. James is on the left below the Lord. He is curled up in the fetal position with hands locked in prayer. Peter is in the center. He tries to catch a glimpse of Christ, but the splendor of the, of the cloud seems to overpower his efforts. John, on the right, has a look of resignation as if to say, only God can save me now. God is holy and just. He cannot deny himself. He cannot overlook my sin. My unholiness, your unholiness must be removed before we can stand in his presence. And so he sent us his son. He interrupts this world and demands our attention. Leo the Great, the champion of Chalcedon, expanded on the Father's words in a sermon where he writes, A voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I am manifested through his preaching. I am glorified through his humility. So listen to him without hesitation. He is the truth and the life. He is my strength and wisdom. Listen to him, whom the mysteries of the law foreshadowed, of whom the mouths of the prophets sang. Listen to him, who by his blood redeemed the world, who binds the devil and seizes his vessels, who breaks the debt of sin and bondage of iniquity. Listen to him, who opens the way to heaven. End quote. Now, as we look at Raphael's transfiguration, we do get the impression that the heavens are opening. But we also notice that Raphael includes two figures that are not in our text. First, the female figure in the center foreground. Any ideas who that might be? There are two thoughts about this character. First, she might be an allegorical figure of faith. Others suggest that she is the church personified, but in either case, it is what she is doing that is important. She points the disciples. She points us to the boy. She reminds us that we are called to serve all of God's creation. The second are the pair of figures to the left of the upper register, off to the side of the mountaintop. Again, there are two thoughts about these figures. Some hold that they are justice and pastor, the patron saints of Demici, the artist patron. 
The second suggestion is Saints Felicissimus and Agapetus, Christian martyrs from the third century who were commemorated in the church's readings for the Transfiguration. Their courage under the persecution of Emperor Valerian reminds us not to hold too tightly to the things of this world. Only Jesus brings salvation and comfort into our lives, both here today and there in eternity. The truth, that truth, is reinforced in the closing words on the mountaintop. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The gospel interrupts us. It interrupts our lives. Life in God's kingdom is not about us. It is about what God has done and continues to do for us in Jesus. Take a final look at Raphael's transfiguration. Notice the strong lines that focus our attention on Jesus. The two disciples on the lower left, the members of the crowd and the boy on the right. In the upper register, Moses and Elijah seem to lean in to catch his every word. Here is the help for all that afflicts us in life. The boy will be released from the demon that holds him captive. God sometimes does choose to heal our physical infirmities. Other times we must take consolation in Paul's word and in, in, with Paul and the Lord's word, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Even more importantly, by his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection, we can approach a holy and just God. In Jesus' glorified body, we catch a glimpse of what heaven will be. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.